Welcome to Chain Reaction, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's flagship network of podcast series examining the political, security, economic, and social trends shaping Europe and Eurasia. Throughout the year, we're talking with experts about developments in Russia's war in Ukraine, the new European security order, the past, present, and future of the Baltic states, Russia's political economy, and great power competition in the region. Join us each month for Bear Market Brief, Baltic Ways, Report in Short, The Continent, and of course, our flagship, Chain Reaction. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Bear Market Brief. Just over a year ago, in November 2022, Bear Market Brief did an episode on Russian public sentiment. What do Russians think and feel about domestic politics, the war broadly, and to what extent can we even know? I think it's just about time to revisit that. I'm Aaron Schwartzbaum, and this is the Bear Market Brief, a podcast about politics, economics, and the space in between in Russia and beyond. This episode, apart from providing an update on where Russian political sentiment stands these days, I wanted to wade into the weeds a bit, don't worry, excessively so, and learn more about how polls are conducted in Russia in the first place. What are the challenges faced by pollsters, and how do they compare with some of the polling methodology challenges that pollsters globally have to deal with? So I was very excited to talk to a team member of Russia Watcher, link in the description, a project that is conducting polling in Russia right now. It was a chance to speak to a practitioner and hear it from the source. With us this episode is Isabel DeSisto. Isabel is a PhD student in politics at Princeton University. She holds a BA in government and an MA in regional studies, Russia, Eastern Europe, and Central Asia from Harvard University. She also holds an MPhil in politics and international studies from the University of Cambridge, as well as an MA in politics from Princeton. Isabel specializes in comparative politics with a regional focus on Eastern Europe. Her research interests include questions related to legacies of state repression, political socialization, and public opinion under authoritarian regimes. So let's dive into it. Isabel, welcome to the Bear Market Brief. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with the basics here. Could you quickly introduce yourself to the crowd here? Uh, Tell us about your research interests these days. Sure. So I am a PhD student at Princeton in the politics department. I specialize in comparative politics with a focus on Eastern Europe. Um, And this project I'm going to be talking about today is a project we've been working on for well over a year now, studying Russian public opinion. But I work on a lot of different things um, related to politics in Eastern Europe, Moldova, Ukraine, um, and the Baltic countries. Some stuff I do is more historical. This project we're going to talk about today is more current um, and public opinion focused. So this project we're talking about today, Russia Watcher, and I'm going to include a link in the episode description. Tell me about it. How did it come together? What are you up to? So Russia Watcher is a daily tracking survey of Russian public opinion. Uh, It came together after the full-scale invasion, which, as I'm sure your listeners will know, was February 24th, 2022. The first few weeks um, for me personally, and I think for a lot of people who I work with, were very challenging. And we were all just sort of taking it day by day. And eventually, when we were able to get ourselves together, we were trying to figure out how we might be of use. Um, And as political scientists, we thought, well, probably our most useful skills are our analytical skills at this point. So how can we help 
um, the broader public and also the academic community understand what's going on. Um, and our team uh, is experienced in public opinion research. So we sort of concocted this idea to create a tracking survey that would help us monitor the state of public opinion in Russia during this ongoing war. Um, and so I got together with some colleagues here at Princeton, Grigo Popelikesh, who is a professor in the department, Jacob Tucker, another graduate student, and later we were joined by Laura Howells, yet another graduate student. And so in about April, May, we started to try to figure out what it would take to launch this project. And as it turns out, it's not easy. I mean, we had experience on the team, but it's hard to get any survey together, much less a survey that runs every day. So at the beginning, it was a lot of, okay, you know, who are we going to work with? How are we going to do it? How are we going to get money to do it? Which is a perennial question for academics. Um, and how as well are we going to work with our university to get approval from the ethics board so that we can conduct this research? Because as academics at a university, um, any research that involves we call it human subjects, so real people, needs to be cleared um, so that we can show that we're being ethical and thoughtful about our work. So eventually we were able to get all of these things together. We put together a list of the things we wanted to ask, and we launched the survey in mid-May 2022, and it's been running daily since then. So I'm not going to do the math in my head because that'll just embarrass me, but it's been quite a while that we've been running this project. And we've also been trying to maintain sort of a public-facing portion, uh, mostly on X, as they call it these days, where we post updates. And we also have a website updated um, fairly regularly with some of the most important trackers. So hopefully that gives you a broad overview. The platform formerly known as Twitter. It's kind of like uh, kind of like Prince here. But um, let's uh, <laughs> talk about some of the specifics. By the way, the website for, for listeners is fantastic, uh, really easy to navigate and read the data. And I can't say that for everybody who's polling Russia, looking at you, Levada. No, no offense. But um, let's, <laughs> let's dive into some of the mechanics here. Uh, what are the kinds of questions you're asking about and, and trying to answer with this polling? So first, I want to shout out to Jacob for the website, because that is his baby, and he's very skilled. So credit where credit is due. Um, to answer your question, we ask loads of different types of questions. As you can see on the website, this is sort of tracker, which says how many questions we've asked. Um, we ask, we the survey is set up, so we have sort of a set of questions we ask every day. These are questions that we want to have pretty precise um, time-sensitive data on. So for example, support for the war, which we have to call the quote, special military operation, um, because that's how it's referred to in Russia. Uh, we also track approval ratings for various political figures, uh, President Putin, for example, um, the Duma, uh, which is Russia's parliament. I don't know. Kirill, the patriarch. Um, Prigozhin. Actually, we're still tracking this despite all of the events of August, his the sort of mutiny and plane crash and ostensible death. Uh, so we also track questions on media consumption, things that we think are important to uh, follow over time. 
We then have some questions we ask on a rotating basis, which we think are important, but we don't need to get information on every single day. And then at the end of the survey, we typically have sort of a free section where we put in more questions that are current event focused. So for example, if something really important happens in Ukraine or in Russia um, that we think it's important to ask about, we can get approval for these questions and we'll put in something that might run for a short amount of time so we can collect data on that. And we also run some survey experiments and that also goes at the end. Great. And now what have you seen in the data of late? I think that's probably the one of the critical questions for this episode. Uh, where does Russian public sentiment towards the war slash special military operation, listener, I'm making air quotes uh, right now, uh, where mm-hmm. does sentiment stand and has, have we seen anything actually move sentiment of, of late? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's sort of seems like a simple question, but it's a very complicated question. I think one thing people would often say uh, since the beginning have often said about our project is when you go to the website, you see this time series graph, which shows um, our estimates of support for the quote unquote special military operation over time. And people will say things like, you know, what's going on? It's basically a line, you know, there's not much going on. And so sort of on the surface, it seems like although you do see some shifts over time and some sort of peaks and valleys, you don't see a lot of really radical change. But I think it's important to note that that doesn't mean that everything is static. You do see change within the scale. So for example, if we were just to take our data and say, what fraction says they support the war? What fraction says they're against? And we'll plot it on a graph. That involves collapsing some of the information into a binary variable, because the way we ask the question is on a scale from fully support to fully suppose and oppose, excuse me. And so if you collapse that, then you lose some information. But even if you do show the full scale, you don't see loads going on. That being said, it doesn't mean everything is stable, because as we know, some people may move to a more pro position. Some people may move to a more anti position and that can come out sort of even, which is interesting. So that kind of change can be masked by a kind of aggregate level stability. Um, and also what the a graph like that doesn't totally tell you is sort of how solid the ostensible support is, right? Because you can imagine on a question saying, well, I, I generally support X. But your support could be conditional. It could be kind of fuzzy. It could be that you don't really think about this on a daily basis. You know, asking someone a question like that about a political preference on a scale is not a natural way for us as humans to express our attitudes toward things. And so it becomes very tricky to kind of interpret these things. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do. That being said, um, we definitely see more movement in other types of indicators. For example, we see a lot more movement in the question where we ask people, how successful do you think this is going? You know, there may be people who will kind of stick to default. Yeah, I generally support the war, but can acknowledge that maybe things aren't going according to plan or how I would like them to go. We see less change in attitudes toward Putin, as one might expect, but we certainly do see change in attitudes toward other political figures. Shaigu, for example, the Minister of Defense, sort of in line with some of the failures in the war and also Yevgeny Prigozhin's very, uh, very critical statements that he's made against the Minister of Defense or had made, we definitely see this reflected in public opinion. 
Prigozhin after he launches this mutiny. We see this reflected in public opinion, a huge tank. And you can see these graphs on our Twitter, uh, excuse me, X handle at Russia underscore watcher. But interestingly, on that note, uh, you still see a non-trivial share of Russians expressing nominal support for Prigozhin even after he's launched this military rebellion. So that's quite interesting. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Some indicators we see more stability, at least on the surface, but we certainly do see shifts. And so the idea that nothing is changing is clearly, clearly not the case. So going to ask you a contrarian question here that came to sure. mind as you were, you were speaking now. About a year ago, we had Russian sociologist Greg Uden by the podcast, and mm -hmm. he was talking about the the limits of the value of polling Russia, that there's really really hard to measure opinion. We can't really trust that people for understandable reasons are are sharing their honest opinions. How would you attack that question? Can can we trust what people are saying? I think that's a great question. And I really respect Greg Uden. He's actually been at, at Princeton. And so we've had these kind of discussions and we've spoken to him. And I think it's, a, it's certainly a fair critique. The big question that we get when we say that we do research on public opinion in Russia is, well, how can you trust any of this? Aren't people lying? And this is a question people have been asking for certainly other contexts as well, authoritarian regimes. You know, how can we trust any of the data coming out if people are living in a dictatorship? And I would say that it's an important question to ask and we need to, you know, show you why the data is trustworthy. But I don't think it's correct to say that we can't trust anything or that people are lying. And we in our work are trying to kind of uncover some of this stuff. First of all, I would say that, you know, it's an uncomfortable reality that many people support the kind of war that's going on. And that's one thing that I'm struggling to come to terms with and should. Uh, also, you know, what people say in a survey is a pretty uh, rough indicator of what they really mean behind the scenes. And also, I would say, I mean, you tell me, but I think people who are really afraid of sharing their opinion would probably opt out of a survey like this. And maybe rather than lying, would, would just not participate. But that's, of course, a problem not just in public opinion research in Russia, China and other autocracies, but in public opinion research in general is what kind of people are answering survey questions. You know, you probably get these links in your email that's like, take this survey and with my personality, I always take it. I don't know why I do that. I guess I just love to share my opinion. But lots of people you can imagine were, are not going to take that. And so trying to figure out how much um, do the people who take these surveys reflect the attitudes of people who don't is, is another question. And so I think it's a, certainly a fair critique. And it's up to us to show you that our data is trustworthy. I think some people probably are lying. It's not as much as you would expect. And that being said, it's important to recognize the limits of public opinion and survey work. And there's a pretty good piece that Bryn Rosenfeld wrote, I think, this past year. It might be in post-Soviet affairs anyway. Should look it up. And she talks about the state of survey research, uh, specifically with regard to Russia's full-scale invasion. How should this change? And she basically says, you know, surveys can still tell us things. They're important. We think our work is valuable, but they can't tell us everything. Right. And they certainly need to be there's a value to doing other types of work as well that help us really dig into what's going on. So basically, I think it's a fair critique, um, but I still think this work has a lot of value. So let's talk some survey methodology here. I feel like in the fields and in discussions broadly, 
the way it's framed as, uh, hey, let's just let's just launch a survey. We'll find out. But that is flattening a lot of different steps and kind of complicated pieces here. So how do you go about getting a survey into the field? Um, how do you go about asking the questions? How are you guys actually asking questions, getting them to the people who need to, to answer? What is what is your approach there? Great question. So there's a lot of different ways that um, surveys are fielded. I myself, I'm not, you know, the prime expert on survey research, but after having done this for a long time, I kind of have a, a, a sense of, of what it takes. Uh, some surveys are in person, um, including in Russia today, you still have in-person surveys, especially with the pandemic. A lot of surveys that were formerly in person are happening more online uh, or via telephone. Um, and so you have, I guess the main ones would be on in-person telephone and, and online surveys. We do our surveys online. Not only is this a lot more, a lot easier for us in Princeton, New Jersey to manage, but also a lot more cost effective than fielding an in-person survey for obvious reasons, or even a telephone survey. And basically we uh, work with a company that uses essentially targeted advertising so the way that a lot of telephone surveys work is uh, it's called random digit dialing. And so that's how you can claim representativeness. You sort of randomly dial people's numbers and then you survey people who answer you. And these get pretty low response rates typically. I mean, think about how many people these days are answering calls on their phones, how many people even have a home phone. Of course, it's different in the U.S. compared to other countries, but, but that can be tough. Um, and so the company we work with basically pushes out ads to uh, users who are using mobile applications on their phones or computers. And essentially, it pushes out an ad that offers an invitation to participate. And then once they click on it, um, we have an informed consent form where we basically, we don't give precise details on our identities, of course, but we say, you know, this is a survey to uh, learn more about your political opinions and here are some potential risks. And, you know, do you agree to participate? Respondents have to say that they agree to participate and then they get the the questions. Uh, and that's basically how it works. Um, so we program the survey and we, you know, have, like I said, kind of a, a running list of of things that we ask. So to, to drill down further here, when you're actually thinking of the questions to measure to measure support for for the war. How are you going about asking that? What are some considerations you have to keep in mind? I guess what I'm trying to get at is some of like the pitfalls of mm-hmm. surveys within Russia or generally. I don't think it's specific to Russia. I think this applies with humans mm-hmm. broadly. Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously, you know, the way that you ask a question really matters. Um, and we've seen this in some of the work we've done. So initially, some of the main kind of political questions that we were asking were adapted from other questions that other polling agencies have asked. You know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. And also, it was important for us to have some kind of uh, comparisons that we could make so we can gauge the quality of, of our data. And so we don't completely reinvent the wheel. We adapted the language from stuff that already exists. Um but we also were curious about, you know, how does asking the question, the way it's phrased, the kind of answer choices you give affect the responses that you're going to get? So, for example, when you ask um, about, you know, to what extent do you support X, whether it be, you know, this policy, this quote unquote special military operation in Ukraine, this politician, 
We typically ask this stuff on a scale, like I mentioned, which goes from, you know, strongly support to strongly oppose, and that's called a Likert scale. It's important for us in our survey, we always give respondents the option to say, I don't know, or I prefer not to answer. Uh, not everybody does that. And, you know, that's part of our commitment with our the ethics board at our university, but also our own personal uh, commitment to making sure that respondents are not answering a question that they feel uncomfortable answering. That be So on some questions, you definitely get a lot more people saying, I don't know. My sense is that it depends per question, but a lot of this is genuine uncertainty. It's not that loads of people are terrified and will just say, don't know. I think a lot of questions, you know, people just are not totally sure where they stand. And so you see much lower rates of uncertainty for certain things than others. A lot more people would be able to tell you whether they're happy with the state of the economy or, you know, prices relative to what do you think of Yevgeny Prigozhin in the wake of a military, you know, rebellion? Like these, these things matter. And so we, to return to my earlier point about question phrasing, at the beginning, we've, we've sort of toyed with ways of asking questions to try and figure out how that would affect the responses we get. And so we have the, our standard way of asking about support for the quote unquote special military operation. And it's important we keep that consistent because we wanted to measure that over time. But we also figured, you know, let's try to ask it in a different way. For example, what happens if we give respondents only two choices, support and oppose, and then don't know. So you can imagine if you give respondents two choices versus a scale of choices that that's going to give you a different cut. Or if you ask people, I'm trying to think, if you give people a neutral option versus support generally, support strongly, oppose generally, oppose strongly, and that's it. If you give a neutral option, you're going to get different things. And so we've kind of played with this. I think it certainly matters, but it doesn't radically change the responses that you get. Makes sense. And I think this is a great opportunity. We don't have an official word of the day on, on this podcast. That's more what we do on the continent. But if you're curious about Russian listeners, it's hard to answer. And it's a, you see that in every Russian poll. Let's turn to our uh, last question here. Um, what are some misconceptions about public opinion and polling in Russia? We talked about some, but want to give you the floor to kind of address address some elephants in the room or, or common mistakes that people are making. Thanks. Yeah, I think I addressed some of this stuff um, earlier. You know, a misconception, everybody is lying. Do I think every single person who answers a survey question is truthful? No, you know, that would be silly. And that's also the case in, you know, the United States or any other country. There's preference falsification, which is kind of the term for people who are misrepresenting their true beliefs. There's also social desirability bias, which is kind of the same thing um, or a flavor of the same thing. And you see this if you ask people a question anywhere. Uh, you know, do you smoke, for example? You can imagine some people who smoke or who don't smoke feeling, depending on the social pressures that they experience, uh, compelled to answer a certain way. And so that's a concern that you have when researching anything pretty much. And there are ways to try to get around that. There are survey techniques that have been developed to try and figure out whether people are being truthful, you know, asking questions in different ways, experimental treatments. So we try to do that to the extent possible. I think, you know, it's not a huge fraction of the population 
or of our survey sample based on our research that are deliberately misrepresenting their preferences on a survey. Like I mentioned, you can imagine if you were really afraid um, or really didn't want to share something, you probably wouldn't participate. But of course, unfortunately, we don't have data on people who don't answer. And so that's a limitation. Um, but we do try to get around that and figure out whether the kinds of people answering are, you know, totally different from the kinds of people who are not by looking at demographics, uh, comparing our research to other research. You know, we really do our best. At the end of the day, there's only so much you can do, but we feel comfortable that we've they've we've done our best. Um, and then, of course, there's the question of what do people really mean? You know, if I tell you I support something, what does that really mean? Um, and that's a much more difficult and longer question to to answer. What else? And I think the idea that it's totally impossible to trust the data, I think that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, this is me speaking as a person, even looking at surveys from polling agencies like Livada and other agencies that are working in Russia and that are under the watchful eye or sort of control of the Kremlin. I think there is some value to those surveys as well. I don't know how all of that is run. I don't personally have contacts in those agencies. Um, but I think, you know, it's still valuable to use that data. Um, of course, there are limits on what it can tell you, and you should be skeptical. I think that's true of looking at any survey or any public opinion data. Is It's important to do your homework and learn how is this fielded, among whom, by whom, and then make your own conclusions. And so that's what we try to do is we're not telling you what to think, but, you know, draw your own conclusions. You often see polling data published about literally anything, and you sort of see these crazy numbers or things that seem strange. And sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's an artifact of the way the question was asked, the sample. So this stuff is really important to, to pay attention to as well. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, there are limits to what we can know from these kind of things, um, but we try to the best of our ability to be as systematic and rigorous as possible and also as transparent as possible about what we're trying to accomplish. And on that note, thank you, Isabel, for joining the Bear Market Brief. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope there'll be some sort of link to our work and um, we appreciate you listening and following along. And hopefully we've been able to add something valuable to the conversation about Russian politics. Thanks again to Isabel and to you, dear listener, for joining. So question for you. If you could poll Russia on something, what would you ask about? Do make sure you stop by Russia Watcher at the link in the description. Do make sure to follow the Bear Market Brief on Twitter, or I guess X, at the handle at Bear Market Brief. The Bear Market Brief is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and on many others, visit fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.